and some of them had seen their parents drown at sea or, or commit suicide. Um, some of them had um, seen pirates come on board and, and rob everybody of what little wealth they had, rape their parents. Before they left Vietnam, they observed things that children shouldn't ever. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome to Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People, a show that brings you the stories of hope, survival, and resilience of the Vietnamese diaspora. In our last episode, Sound of Freedom, we shared the story of Meredith Kennedy, a devoted volunteer at the Singapore refugee camp at 25 Hawkins Road. She made an impact on the lives of Vietnamese refugees. We will continue the theme, Faith in Humanity, stories about ordinary women who became extraordinary humanitarians during the boat people crisis. I didn't think seriously about volunteering until a friend of mine, another expatriate French lady, said that she was going to go and have a look because she was an English teacher in France and she thought maybe they could use her services. And I said, well, I'm a nurse and midwife. And she said, well, why don't you come along and have a look? Nesta Morgan, a trained nurse, moved to Singapore because her husband had to relocate for his job. He was a senior executive for a British oil company. She had mixed feelings about leaving home. With two children, it was hard to imagine uprooting their lives. When we got to Singapore, it was just overwhelmingly hot. That's all I can remember. It humid, breathless, um, very exciting. And very scary, really, because there were animals and insects and customs and language that we just didn't know anything about. So uh, quite difficult for the girls to start with because they had to go into school and they didn't know anybody. Nesta was in her mid-30s and thought the move to Singapore was not only hard to adjust to at first, but also put her own career as a nurse and midwife on hold. Very difficult for me because I had been working full-time. The children were old enough that I could now work full-time, and it meant giving up quite a, a hard-won battle of training uh, to become a professional and to do the work I was doing, because it was very demanding. Um, I'd also been offered a really good job just before my husband told us, asked us if we'd like to go and live in Singapore. So it was a wrench for me as far as my professional career was concerned, and leaving my parents and uh, siblings. At that time, expat wives were expected to live a certain lifestyle. It was hard because I'd been used to doing running a household, bringing up children, having a full-time job, everything myself. Um, the expectation was that you would be a lady of leisure. But I wasn't expected to drive. I was expected to uh, have servants. I was expected to let the driver take me and wait outside, which... He only did it once and I stopped that. The house was a big, beautiful house and we were expected to entertain because of my husband's position. Um, and I'd never done anything like that before. I was just, you know, a mum, a working mum. So we had to have events and caterers. Even though Nesta wanted to work, it was hard for her to find something. I did some volunteer work with several agencies but didn't really like that. But I knew that there was, was a refugee camp and I, I knew from the World Service news that we listened to about what was happening in Vietnam and to uh, Vietnamese people. So I was very concerned and worried about that because of the very harrowing pictures that were shown on the, uh, on the news bulletins and what I read in the uh, British papers. 
Nesta arrived at the camp in August of 1980. It felt very overwhelming at first. I didn't know what to expect at all. Um, lots of noise, pop music, making announcements about meeting places and what refugees had to do. Hundreds of people milling around, playing football, playing cards, hanging, washing out, cooking on little stoves, little um, paraffin stoves. It was just a, a flurry, really, of noise and activity and uh, smells. You could smell the um, the camera gas, uh, the paraffin they were cooking with. Uh, you could smell food cooking. Um, you could smell bad smells as well because Singapore is very hot and there were a lot of open drains all around the camp. I knew I didn't speak the language. I didn't know if I'd be accepted. I didn't know if I was going to be able to communicate. And then I started to volunteer seriously and went um, several times a week because it was about a um, 35-40 minute drive to where the refugee refugee camp was. And the bus used to be full of Dutch and French and German and American, um, British, um, Canadian, all sorts of people that were there um, that had skills, such a lot of such a lot of skills of people that were um, desperate really to do something with the time and something that was meaningful. The camp was the site of a former British barrack. There were 24 two-story wooden homes with as many as 100 people living in each house when it was full. She remembers the conditions of the camp. The houses were shabby and not very clean, with sparse furniture and bare floors, not to mention lots of insects. So quite decayed, quite depressing in a way. But once, once I got to know my way around and was invited into people's homes and did home visits, most people had made an amazing efforts to clean and uh, paint and whitewash and um, make sanitary their living space. Most people only had, most people only had sleeping mats, um, mosquito nets. Um, and uh, there was a, a lot of pride in keeping your own little space you know, clean and neat. By the time Nesta met the refugees, they had already been welcomed and transported to Hawkins Road. People were very frightened and anxious. Having been at sea for weeks, they were very thin and dehydrated. There was a very happy atmosphere in the camp and um, people were very welcoming and people had made very firm friends of their fellow travellers. So, um, you know, friendships forged and people became less anxious and frightened, but very, very worried about what they'd left behind and who they'd left behind and uh, what the future held for them. And um, they had no choices, really. Very few of them had choices as to what happened to them next, which you can't imagine how terrible that must be. Very thin. That's the one staggering thing that um, I noticed, how thin everybody was. Um, nobody had been able to eat well for many years, I think. But especially the mums, uh, the ones who were expecting babies. Some of them, I was about 110 pounds. 100, so I'm, I'm small and I was slim, but they were half my size and fully pregnant. And, uh, and obviously all the nutrition, any nutrition they had, had been going to the baby because of the thinness of people. And that disturbed me a lot. Nessa started off volunteering at the health clinic. As most Vietnamese women were too embarrassed to talk about childbirth openly in groups or classes, Nesta decided to create one-on-one counseling sessions. With the help of an interpreter, 
she was able to create a clinic where she would prepare women for childbirth, prenatal care, and taught them about breastfeeding. Since conditions at the camp were not sanitary enough, the UNHCR paid for expecting mothers to deliver their babies at a local hospital. UNHCR paid for the delivery in a hospital, but they weren't allowed to stay very long, not long enough to learn how to handle the baby or bath the baby or feed the baby. A lot of these girls didn't have any parents or any women that could advise them. So partly, I, I tried to help people if they wanted to. A lot of children were at the camp without any parents, and this continued to increase during the time Nesta was there. At first, I was just aware of some quite little children running about wild. Some as young as six or seven. Um, the majority were young teenagers, 13 to 16. And you would think they would cope better than the little ones, but they just didn't um, show what they were feeling or what they were fearing. The little ones, they were mainly looked as though they were adjusting very well, but they didn't understand a lot of what had happened to them and didn't know about what was going to happen to them. Um, some of them had really harrowing stories to tell. Many of the parents couldn't accompany them, but wanted a better life for them. So they paid in gold uh, for them to be taken. Most of them had somebody that was looking after their interests, an uncle or an auntie or a neighbor, but some of them not at all. And some of them had seen the parents drown at sea or, or commit suicide. Um, some of them had um, seen pirates come on board and, and rob everybody of what little wealth they had, rape their parents, uh, the mothers. They observed things that children shouldn't ever. Um, so obviously um, that affected them a lot. I was very worried about the children uh, at the beginning because they weren't being nurtured in any way. I mean, people took them under the wing a bit and made sure they'd had something to eat. But some children were, were just really running wild and uh, exposed to all the dangers that little children are exposed to with thousands of people around them. I did meet Shashi Taro, who is the um, United Nations High Commissioner for Southeast Asia. He came on visits to the camp and quite often talked to me about my findings and my feelings and what needed doing. Um, so I had, the, I had the ear of the top bot, which was amazing. After several conversations, she got permission from the High Commissioner to set up a house for unaccompanied children. They found a house that was empty and a group of volunteer refugees helped cleaned it and volunteered to care for the children. And at some, some stages, there were 40, 50 children at a time in that one house. So uh, that was good. But it was hard because some children didn't want to live there. And some children wanted to live with families that attached themselves to. Yeah, so there were lots of concerns about child safety. Eventually, Nesta transitioned into working in mental health at the request of the UNHCR. Keeping a level of confidentiality was important to Nesta, especially since the nature of things that people were sharing with her was very private. She wished she could have spoken Vietnamese, but she did develop close relationships with the interpreters. They were all women. Another lady who was her husband had been very senior in the army and taken to a re re-education camp, and she fled 
with her two little girls and was so frightened of being raped she'd shaved her head. Uh, but she spoke uh, fluent English, which was really important for me because she explained when I was doing things wrong. I mean, you know, touching people, making direct eye contact, sort of questions you ask and don't ask. So she helped me as far as cultural understanding and was a, a lovely, lovely person. The most difficult things were listening to very harrowing stories from people. One mother had boarded a, a boat. They were at sea for over three weeks. They ran out of food and water. The little one that she had with her um, died of dehydration. She gave birth to, to a baby prematurely on the boat. Um, her husband was the captain, so he was driving the boat. And she had to cut the cord herself and manage, and she... She had the most terrible time. Um, when she got to um, the camp, she was psychotic. She she didn't know where her children had gone, didn't know how, where to turn, how to cope. Um, that's the worst example of the terrible things that happen. Um, the arrangement um, UNHCR had with the Singapore government was that 90 days was the maximum allowed stay. Um, so, some and people went a little bit over that because of difficulties with the resettlement process and um, poor communication or difficulty in communication. Most people, after 90 days, were resettled, maybe not where they wanted to be, but were resettled somewhere. If that wasn't looking possible, then um, in Indonesia, there was a camp called Galang, and that was a longer-term camp, apparently a very, a very good one. But I did communicate with the, um, some of the um, social workers that worked there, because when families or people had to be sent to Galang to wait longer, they were very concerned that they'd never get resettled. Nesta was instrumental in documenting and sharing with resettlement countries the backgrounds and conditions of the Vietnamese refugees. During this time, Nesta also observed the practice of Gao Yao. It is a traditional Vietnamese practice of scratching and bruising the skin from neck, back, and chest with a medicinal eucalyptic oil. It is believed to relieve pain and scratch away any fever from the body. Nesta was worried that the bruises would be misunderstood as physical signs of abuse. She wrote to the UNHCR in Geneva, and they acted on her request by publishing communications that would educate health staff in resettlement countries of this traditional Vietnamese practice. In March 1982, Nesta wrote an article for the UN and Health Visitor, a nursing publication. Many are desperately anxious about their fragmented families and uncertain future. Deeply enriched beliefs and customs, this is all that they have left of their former lives. It is important that professionals in host countries know something about the background of the Vietnamese people and understand the cultural shock that they must be experiencing. After two and a half years of volunteering at the camp, Nesta was sad to have to leave and say goodbye to everyone. Her husband's term had ended in Singapore, and it was time for them to take the family back to England. I think for all my family, they were pleased because I'd been very disheartened when I first got to Singapore. I'd been ill um, and I'd been lonely and I felt I was wasting my 
potential of what I could give, apart from obviously helping the children with their homework and being a mum. During the day, there wasn't a great deal to do and it was, it was a rarefied existence that I didn't want to have really. So I was very happy to have found something, something important that I could contribute to and um, also to have the permission to do it in a way. I mean, I was the, I'm sure it's not the same now, but I was allow, allowed to go in and assess what needed doing and implement it and have it financed. I miss the experiences I'd had working at Hawkins Road and that was the most important time of my, my professional life anyway, because what I had to do was so varied um, and so needed. I had the medical centre people's ear, I had um, Shashi Taro's ear, I had the ear of social workers in resettlement countries. So it felt like the communication, the communication role I had was really important and really needed and I missed that when I came home. Nessa said the experience in working with the Vietnamese refugees taught her many things about herself. While her job was to help the refugees mentally adjust to a new life and find comfort in many unknowns, it was actually the refugees that helped her find confidence in herself. She didn't know it at the time, but the experiences at the Hawkins Road camp was a big turning point in Nesta's personal journey. One of the most important things was trusting my own judgment. That was amplified after I'd left and intervening when I felt it was really important at any level and um, planning programs and trying to change policies. So it became more political really in the way I worked. But I felt, I don't know, more like a world citizen in a way after I left. Um, so it, it did feel a, a little bit broken when I got home. I actually went on to train in social work when I got home and mainly with abused children, worked with abused children and, um, and that was obviously vital and important but it, it was of a, different, of a different nature. The need of the refugees I worked with was profound and I couldn't do it a lot because I didn't have a lot of language but um, I felt it was important at the time. It stayed with me forever. If you happen to have found refuge at the Singapore camp at 25 Hawkins Road and want to reconnect with Nesta, follow our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 9. And stay with us as we continue to bring you more heartfelt stories on faith and humanity. And a special thanks to our associate producers, Trisha Vung and Matt Young, for curating this episode. Tracing Wen Ming, and thank you for listening and helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform and follow us on Instagram at Vietnamese Boat People. And if you have a story to share, email us at stories at Vietnamese Boat People.org.